Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Long time no podcast. Sorry about that. Things have been busy. Um, so I've been quite delayed in actually sitting down to record a podcast episode. Anyways, I probably sound sick right now because I'm congested. Don't have COVID, just am allergic to hay and unfortunately I have to handle hay every single day. So it's real fun. Anyways, before I get started, I just wanted to remind you all that I have a Patreon account that you can subscribe to if you want access to exclusive content. Um, Starts at just $3 a month, and there's also a tier for people who are interested in online training and want to have access to a private line where we can discuss training options and kind of do like little lessons and critiques for riding and stuff about your horse. So there's also an option for that for anyone who is interested in that. Um, My Anchor account no longer lets me monetize my podcast, which is a bit of a pain. So I'm plugging the Patreon, and then there's also a podcast support option through Anchor that you can do if you're interested in doing it that way where it's just like a monthly support no worries if not it's not the end of the world not to have this monetized it's just nice because i have to get extra equipment for the podcast but for this one i don't because uh uh, my brother's dog chewed through my headphones cord so i don't have nice headphones anymore so i'm gonna get new ones eventually bear with me but anyways let's get started So for those of you who don't know, I've been taking an online course through Guelph University. I'm taking their advanced equine behavior course. I did their first like equine behavior course. That's the precursor to the one that I'm in several years ago. And I've also done like many other courses through them. I'm almost finished getting my equine science certificate from them. I just need to do two more courses. So anyways, I've been studying a lot of stuff and I've had access to a university library because of that, which has allowed me to download lots of studies and do lots of learning that way, which also not to plug my Patreon again, I share some of the studies and kind of discuss them on my Patreon as well. So that's another reason why you might want to consider subscribing. But anyways, so I've been in this course and I've been studying lots of stuff related to equine behavior and I've had to be writing like papers and whatnot. Right now I'm working on a research paper that I'm doing on stress in competition horses in specific and all of this stuff has kind of brought out a lot of emotions in me like mostly rage um, especially since like this past week there was a lot of writings on Marilyn Little for those of you who don't know Marilyn Little is an event rider who has had bloody mouths on course for cross country like seven or eight times now on different horses and she's also well known for using like some pretty ridiculous bidding get-ups and gadgets and whatnot so not a favorite person of mine Anyway, she's pretty controversial in the horse world across like all disciplines for anyone who does know her. So she was at an event this past week and she was in the lead after dressage, which is also kind of ironic because the last event she did before this one, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the photo, you should look it up. Look up Marilyn Little tight flash, it'll come up. Um, The last competition she was in, she was also in the lead after dressage and photos came up online and they were like of honestly the tightest flash I've ever seen in my life. I have no idea how no one noticed that before she came in and why no one did anything. It's a complete disgrace to the sport. Anyways, so this past week, she's at another competition, first after dressage. News outlets like Chronicle of the Horse and Eventing Nation were writing about how the event was going, and so they both put out articles about her. And said articles were written in a very flattering light. There was no mention of like any prior controversy and whatnot. So that really rubbed me the wrong way because in my opinion, especially since like I've studied journalism and stuff in school, again, for those of you who don't know, I've also been pursuing a journalism degree, but school is expensive, so it's going very slowly. Anyways, we studied like proper journalism and good journalism, and a lot of it is about like 
not having an inherent bias and including both sides. So it really rubs me the wrong way to see these news sources just essentially kissing her ass because she was in the lead and not mentioning anything about the prior controversy. Like, they didn't even need to take a stance on what side within the controversy they were on, but just to mention the fact that she's had this many bloody mouths, I don't know, it pissed me off, and a lot of the comments in response to the links that they shared for these articles were against Marilyn Little, which is good, but there was also quite a few in support of her and saying that the photos are just a moment in time and, like, people who haven't ridden four-star level can't judge and so on and so forth. So, essentially, that's going to be the topic of this podcast is competition and my opinions on competition. So, the first thing that I want to point out is that I completely disagree with the idea that you cannot criticize an upper-level rider unless you have competed at the same level as them. I think that is one of the stupidest excuses I've ever heard, and it's a total cop-out. I think it's what people do to try to shut down and justify abuse, because if they use that excuse, the only way you can confound their argument is by competing at that level. So I'm going to talk about why that's a shitty argument and why like any of you listening if you've ever used this just think of a different way to make your point in any argument even if someone is in the wrong with criticizing a rider you should be able to if there if your argument is solid you should have more than that so anyways the problem with that is that it implies that you need to ride at a specific level to have any knowledge of equine behavior or their body makeups and how they're like how many nerves are in the mouth where the nerves run along their face what is comfortable and uncomfortable for them it implies that you need to ride at the four star level in order to know these things when that couldn't be further from the truth to be frank a lot of the people at the top levels of sport actually benefit from blatantly ignoring equine behavior signals whether they are just naive and actually do not know how to properly read equine behavior or maybe they do and they've just become so desensitized due to the number of stressed horses that they see all the time in competition so what i'm trying to say here is that someone being a good rider at the top of the sport has absolutely no basis on if they're an ethical horse person or if they can actually read equine behavior adeptly so It's such a crap argument because most of the top equine scientists and the people who are running the show with like advancing equine vet medicine and learning more about the science behind equine behavior and learning theory, most of those people haven't ridden at the four star level, but they are way more qualified to make the call on if a horse is unhappy or if they're exhibiting stress behaviors than any four star rider is. Because at the end of the day, four star riders are just riders. They, generally speaking, do not have any type of relevant education on equine behavior and animal husbandry, which are the most important points when you're referencing actual welfare. They don't have credentials that make them more qualified to call the shots on that. And in fact, someone such as myself is actually more educated than most four-star riders on equine sciences. I can pretty much guarantee you that, that they do not have the paper trail of actually getting a post-secondary education on equine sciences because it doesn't really hold any merit when you're just trying to move to the top of the levels and it's not going to change the results if you want to take shortcuts in fact it's most likely just to make you feel guilty about doing certain things and render you unable to take the types of shortcuts that other people do to advance at that level so rant over but 
bad excuse, terrible excuse. And like I said, there's a whole lot of people who have essentially nothing to show for themselves from a show perspective, such as myself, that are more educated than most of the top level riders that we are witnessing. And like I said, the reason why they can get away with doing a lot of the things that they do that are not fair to the horse is because there is a level of cognitive dissonance that kind of distances themselves from accepting that what they're doing is unfair to the horse or that there could be ways that they could change how they handle horses that would improve welfare in the barns and it would also require them to actually acknowledge what stress behaviors are and when horses are exhibiting them and I'm not saying this because some people take what I'm saying out of context when I say stuff like this I'm not saying this to say that anyone who has a horse who exhibits stress behaviors at any time is a bad person stress is something that is hard to avoid especially in a competition situation but the level of stress and how frequently stress behaviors occur especially very extreme ones that's something that every rider should take into account so I'm not saying to vilify and bully everyone who has a horse that exhibits stress behaviors but I'm saying when we're criticizing upper level riders the upper level riders themselves are not any more qualified to make the call on equine behavior than the vast majority of lower level riders and lower level riders could have more of an education on equine behavior and science than a four-star event rider so the types of people that make excuses for riders like Marilyn Little by saying unless you've competed at that level you can't judge, they're essentially condoning bad horsemanship and abusive practice on the basis of that no one should judge unless they've ridden at that level. And even from the standpoint of like any sport, you can judge someone's morals and ethics without even being a part of the sport at all. Like frankly, if I showed some non-horse people in my life some of the photos of Marilyn Little on her horses, they don't need to have any horse knowledge to know that the horses with the bloody frothy mouths or tight flashes with their eyes bugging out of their head, they can tell that they're stressed. And I think that says something because essentially what has happened is that a lot of riders has have become totally desensitized to stress behaviors to the point where they're actually willing to justify like blatantly cruel practices um, under the guise of it being okay because someone riding past a certain level must mean they're credible. And here's the thing. You do not need to be ethical to advance to the top of the sport. The judging is not based on ethics, and in fact, judges in a lot of cases are willing to score horses very well that are extremely stressed. Exhibit A, Marilyn Little always being in first after dressage when her horse is arguably one of the most stressed horses at those events. You don't need to be ethical to advance to the top. So a show record means absolutely nothing in terms of how well you care for your horse or how well you provide what they need. And this is honestly one of the biggest problems with competition is the fact that for the vast majority of competitions, ethicality doesn't really hold weight in your score. Like especially with disciplines like cross country or show jumping, there are essentially like no real bit regulations to prevent people from using absurdly tough getups on course. And on top of this, like 
like the fact that Marilyn Little was even t- able to go into the dressage ring at that event that I'm referencing with a tight flash, stuff like that, like over tightened nosebands, uh, like unfair bit setups, like a double twisted wire gag or a really long shanked Western curb bit being put on an English horse ridden with direct contact, contact stuff like that. They're not checking it enough. Like, the fact that anyone can get away with a flash being tight to the point where it's digging into the horse's face when their mouth isn't even open, let alone someone at the pinnacle of the sport, it's utterly shameful. And I'm not saying any of these things to make people feel guilty about competing, because it's not the act of competing itself that's the problem, but it's what we've allowed to let slide in the competition world and the state of the competition world right now with how we value people's placings and their prestige of like their name and who they are we value that more than we actually value good horsemanship and what I mean by that is if someone has really fancy horses and can produce results and can jump big jumps and look cool while doing it a lot of people hold more weight in that than they will in someone that produces horses more slowly and might have more boring videos and photos to share because they're doing things slowly and it's not as exciting to watch someone jump over cross rails when they're producing a horse at the rate that they probably should be when the horses are young it's more boring so they don't get the same level of views and people supporting them because it's not as interesting and doesn't photograph as well as a horse jumping like a four-foot fence um and it's it's a problem because if we're going to start to actually seriously address welfare in horse sports, it requires people to start being more aware and being more critical. And I know how hard it is, especially when you've never done it, to call out your idols or to have to have to sit there and realize that a rider you have really respected has done stuff that is completely unfair to their horse or has exceptionally stressed horses in competition or has done shady things. It is devastating to find out and have to let that go. So a lot of people just choose not to believe it and continue going about supporting shitty people. And I can understand the psychology behind that, but it's not a sustainable practice if we're actually in this sport because we love the horses, which honestly, the vast majority of riders will claim that the reason why they show and compete horses is because of their sheer love for the horse. But I find that a little bit ironic because a lot of these same people are willing to go to big lengths, great lengths to condone abusive practice in themselves and in their favorite riders so it it requires a more awareness and I said this in my last podcast where I kind of went in depth on like the misunderstanding of equine behavior signals and how ingrained it is and how it's taught from like the start of our equestrian careers so if you want to go back to that one I go in detail but the problem is that a lot of people honestly don't know better and They don't know where to even start. Like, you can't look something up if you don't even know what the thing is to look up in the first place. So there's a certain amount of distrust that these people have towards science and stuff when it's shown to them, especially when it conflicts with the practices that they've done every day, because acknowledging that something you've done for years is wrong or that it could be done better is really hard for a lot of people to do. And then it's even harder to acknowledge the fact that someone you've grown up supporting and fawning over and idolizing is a piece of shit to their 
horse. Um, and from my stance, like I've kind of gotten desensitized to the calling out of idols and being aware that they aren't as perfect as I once thought because I've gotten sent a lot of shady shit about different professional riders at the top of the sport and the types of things that they put their horses through. And while maybe not all of it is true, if even a fraction of it is, it is very scary to know these things. And I've been contacted by grooms of people at the top of the sport, riders I know, who have said stories in detail that have been reaffirmed by other people who have been working students for the same riders. So I'm inclined to believe a fair amount of it. I'm not going to name drop or share that information because I don't want to get sued because I can't prove it. Um, but it's result it's resulted in me having to come to terms with the fact that even the riders that I currently appreciate and support aren't immune to these types of things and that if it comes to light that they're not as great as I think they are that's something that I'm gonna have to deal with myself and with that said like I've openly called out like numerous professionals even in the last year like for example Eric Lamaz was like my childhood hero and then he started like being like kind of a racism apologist this year so I called him out and he actually responded to me and we got in a fight on Facebook which like I never would have predicted when I was like nine years old supporting him um, that I would fight with him when I was in my 20s. But anyways, I've gotten desensitized to doing that because at this point, like, if I'm gonna call someone out, like, with Marilyn Little, I went on a bit of a tear on Marilyn Little on my Facebook and Twitter, if people haven't seen, and then also on my Instagram story a couple days ago. Um, I don't care what she or other people who support her think of me. I do not give a shit because they are shitty to their horses if they support her or if they take issue with me saying something that at at the end of the day is just for the benefit of the horse and out of concern for the horse. Um, I don't give a fuck what they think. Like, I don't care. They can say whatever they want. They can pretend that I'm just, like, a shitty rider or shitty this. Like, I'm not anything in the horse world in comparison to them, which is true. But that doesn't change the fact that what I take issue with is true, and I can back it with science, and that the actual most credible people in terms of welfare and ethicality for horses would reaffirm the opinions that I put out there. So these powerful people aren't as untouchable as you think. And I understand how much scarier it would be to call them out, especially if you're competing on the same circuit as them. And maybe I would have a little bit more discretion if I had to actually see the person or if they had like any control over my ability to like be somewhere. But even then, like, I don't think I don't think silence is the answer. And I think more people need to start speaking out and saying things because at the end of the day, it's about protecting the horses. The horses can't say anything. They can't rat out their abusive trainers because they can't talk. So they're utterly reliant on people like us talking for them and taking issue with bad practice on their behalf. They need us to say something. So I think that should come above over any concern about the person retaliating. And the only thing I will say is that when you're calling out like any big person who can afford big lawyers or just anyone in general, just be careful not to say anything that you cannot prove. For example, me saying that Marilyn Little is a shitty person who makes her horse's mouth bleeds, she or makes her horse's mouth mouths bleed, she can't do anything about that because there's photographic evidence of it occurring. She can't do shit about that. So just don't make bold claims that you can't prove 
prove and claim them to be fact. You can speculate. Speculating isn't illegal, but if you try to frame something as fact and you can't prove it, you do risk someone coming after you for defamation. So don't do that. But it's still worth calling her out, sharing all of the many images people like her have of their stressed horses and talking about it. Creating discussion is how you incite change because essentially what this is going to end up having to come to is that all of the little guys who aren't at the pinnacle of the sport, but there's way more of us than there are top level riders at the very top of the sport. There's way more of us. We make up the we make up the masses. It'll require all of us rallying for the welfare of the horses and making demands to well to the organizations that sanction our shows and making them follow through with them and kind of just creating enough noise that they can't ignore it and that they can't continue to defer to people at the top of the sport. So it'll require people being loud. So like I want to encourage people to share what they think more and to start holding the organizations that sanction our shows like USEF and Equine Canada more accountable and writing them emails like documenting the shit you see at shows because for the most for most shows people actually sign a media release to be there which means they are allowed to be photographed so if you see something shady going on taking a video or a photo at a show isn't a bad thing and like if the stewards don't do anything when you report something raise a big stink about it online on social media get people to share it get it getting traction and it'll start to hold these organizations more accountable because I know it's not just me who has reported stuff to stewards only to have nothing come out of it. I've heard numerous people with the same story, whenever, especially when you're going after big names that are providing a lot of money to these showgrounds. Oftentimes, nothing comes out of it, even if you can prove that something happened. They don't care enough to actually do it. So we have all these stewards and these people who are supposed to be at the shows for the protection of the horses that aren't doing their job of protecting horses. And the only way to hold them accountable is by letting people know what's going on and sharing it. And another argument people have against doing that is the concern of like animal welfare organizations coming for our sport, which in some ways might be a little bit viable, but at the same time, they're going to come for our sport either way. And if we start actually making an effort to clean it up, They're not going to have as much shit to be pissed off about and to show and get like going with all the militant vegans that are going to be against it. You know, like not everyone's going to agree with horseback riding in the first place, but like we can't fear big like animal rights organizations so much that we're not going to benefit welfare and fight for better organization, I mean, better regulations to protect the horses. We shouldn't be so scared of losing our sport that we don't want to stand up for the horses because at the end of the day, if we're not willing to make improvements and changes with the times, which we've been really shitty at doing, um, if we're not willing to do that, do we even deserve to be doing this sport in the first place? And racing the racing industry gets so much flack for like the abuse and stuff going on in it and i'm not saying that they don't still need to change but they've made a lot more advances in trying to set practices to improve equine welfare the last decade than the show world has basically ever like we don't really have anywhere near the same 
level of protections for like any show horse like there's not any type of data tracking or anything to try to hold people accountable if they're consistently producing lame horses or like having horses leave competition and just disappear off the face of this earth there's no nothing that's holding them accountable and even at shows if they do shitty things it's far too easy for people to get away with them even in instances where riders have been caught drugging there's a lack of accountability depending on who the person is. I always reference the Kelly Farmer case where she got off with a slap on the wrist when her horses tested positive for cocaine. And then also we have Andy Coacher, Andy Coker, I don't know how to say his last name, who is just now being investigated after having ridden in some pretty shitty get-ups and been using electric spurs for literal years, allegedly, I will add, but there's a lot of photos with him with the trigger button in his hand that he presses to electrify the spurs, so believe what you want, but he's being, he's finally being investigated by the FEI. This is following last year where he entered a horse in the derby and the Grand Prix back-to-back, and the horse was exhausted the second day to the point where it took, like, it took like 24 faults or something something ridiculous but if you watch the video the horse is like obviously tired and he is just now a year later finally getting investigated for welfare concern and personally my belief is that the fbi only actually went about investigating him because of the public outcry i think that they probably would have kept trying to ignore it otherwise but i can't say that that's true for sure that's just a speculation of mine And I think that public outcry for this reason is very powerful and that we could incite a lot of change just by getting loud and not allowing these organizations that are essentially running the show, like literally running the show, um, get away with so much. Like if we hold them more accountable, we don't let them sweep things under the rug. They're not going to be able to hide as much stuff and they're not going to be able to ignore as much stuff. So anyways, I'm going to share some of the studies that I've been studying for my research paper that I'm writing, or at least trying to write, not doing a very good job of committing to. Anyways, so this is a research paper. You can look it up. It might not be publicly available for free, but it's Potential Effects of Stress on the Performance of Horses. Um, And here, I'm just going to read this part. So this is this is a paragraph that's discussing stress versus distress. So stress doesn't always result in a negative influence on body homeostasis it as it is one of the physiological mechanisms that animals have evolved to cope with normal short-term stressors that are routinely encountered so for example exercise of any sort like even for people is technically a short-term stressor because it puts stress on the body physically um but it's not necessarily a bad thing it can be bad if you do it to an extreme or if you make it stressful through other avenues but it's not in itself a bad thing. So stress itself doesn't necessarily have to reference a bad thing. It's when it goes over a certain threshold that it becomes a problem. So anyways, what the article says is the problem comes when this balance is broken as then resources demanded from the stress response must be shifted away from other biological functions of the animal such as reproduction or growth. This situation has been described as distress rather than stress. So When stress, especially when it's long-term stress or chronic stress, it starts to actually negatively impact the body. And chronic stress is like what generally pushes horses to develop stereotypic behaviors like weaving or cribbing and so on and so forth. So, yeah. So anyways, components that can affect a successful sport horse in work uh, are thermal conditions. The weather can induce stress if they're not used to it. 
Um, rainfall deteriorating track conditions can affect exercise performance and induce stress. Um, and so on and so forth. Physical abilities, confirmation, and whatnot can affect stress. The horse that is built better for the job is probably going to have less physical stress than a horse that's not built as well for the job. So anyways, in short, the study concluded that above a certain threshold of stress negatively impacts performance. So even from the standpoint of people wanting good results in their horses, they're more likely to have consistently better results with a horse who is less stressed than one that is stressed to the nines and cannot properly function due to being so anxious. Um, Another study, this one, if you want to look it up, it says, does work affect personality, a study in horses? So basically this, this study took horses out of certain disciplines and would train, like they trained show jumpers, they trained dressage, and then they trained like a higher school of dressage beyond like regular dressage training and compared all the horses' personalities to see if once they're starting to get trained in a certain discipline, if it affected the way they react to things. The study concluded that horses that were in the dressage category were more stressed and developed stereotypic vices more than the ones in the jumping categories. They were more anxious and they were quicker to react with fear. The hypothesis for this was because dressage horses are required to have way more like specific movements where they have to stay in the same movement and there's not as much room for kind of play and like doing other things like they had very structured exercise and specific movements that rendered them within a certain confine of a movement for x amount of time and the lack of ability to exhibit the same frustrated behaviors that show jumpers are usually allowed to do on course means that they were more stressed and they kind of kept more stress and frustration bottled up because they did not have the same liberty to show these behaviors and they have to maintain a certain frame that's static for an extended period of time. So it found that like work can absolutely influence anxiety in horses and Increased anxiety is often found in cases of work stress, it says. So horses that are chronically stressed in work and competition are more likely to have stereotypic vices in their stalls and just chronic stress in other situations. With that said, a horse not having stall vices isn't an indicator that they're not stressed or that they're at, or that they're happy in their certain situation. A lot of the horses that are stalled 24-7 might not have specific stall vices, or if they do have vices, they're not necessarily the widely recognized ones like cribbing, weaving, chewing, stall walking. They could do stuff like head nodding, grinding their teeth, crossing their jaw, painting their ears, and trying to bite people and stuff. Those are all still technically stress behaviors and stereotypic behaviors, but a lot of people don't recognize them as that. They'll kind of write it off as like, oh, he nods his head because he's just dancing to the music or he's just playing or he's just cranky when it's feed time and stuff. They'll say stuff like that, but it's a stress behavior. So, um, stress, like, it also depends on the horse because there's also horses that are naturally more reactive from a young age without having humans influence it. So they are probably more likely to be less resilient in handling stress than horses that are more stoic and less spooky naturally. Um, so it varies from horse to horse. But with that said, like most of these studies on competition horses have found that like chronic stress in ridden work influences their behavior even outside of that and it kind of stays with them even once they've finished 
their exercise, not for like extended periods of time with the high levels of cortisol in their saliva, but it still stays with them after they have finished their work. So there is, there's a lot of studies where they've assessed the level of salivary cortisol in competition horses. There's more than one that I'll reference. Um, a lot of them are in the Journal of Veterinary Behavior, if people want to check that out. Um, but essentially, like what most of these studies have found is that the cortisol level in the saliva climbs when horses are competing. Um, with certain disciplines, the level would climb like up to four times over, which is pretty high. Um, but with other ones, there wasn't like a massive peak in it. So like for hor- show jumping horses that they tested on that were experienced in competition and weren't new to competing had a peak that was like fairly still fairly low stress and they associated the peak of cortisol with just the necessary stress level for doing that specific activity Um, because cortisol levels will increase during exercise regardless but there are certain peaks in certain disciplines or with horses who were less experienced where they'd have way higher levels than like the control group of experienced horses um and they found like with cross-country horses it would it climbed like four times over when they tested it at the end of the cross-country round and they also tested horses before they were ever competing like when they were still in the stalls before being tacked and there wasn't they didn't find that there was any like ability to anticipate competition because their cortisol levels didn't increase in accordance with that so anyways Um, Another study I'm going to reference is also from the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science, and it's about competition horses being housed in single stalls and the effects of free exercise on the behavior in the stable and behavior during training and the degree of stress. So everyone probably, if you've listened to like basically any of my podcasts, because I try to sneak this in there in most of them, they know that I really don't support horses being stalled for extended periods of time and I'm not joking when I say that like all of the studies done on stalling versus turnout have concluded that stalled horses are stressed and unfortunately a lot of owners um lots of competition owners included and upper level riders they'll say their horses like being stalled because they'll be calmer in a stall than they are outside they're way more likely to kind of freak out and run around and get stressed outside if they're not used to it, especially if they have a lot of pent-up energy from standing around for exceptionally long periods of time. Um, And people attribute that to them just not liking turnout when really it's essentially like what would happen even to humans if you kept them in a tiny 12 by 12 box with boarded up walls and no socialization and just threw them out into a completely different way more stimulating environment and just expected them to be okay with it yeah it'll cause stress and it's up to the individual to kind of deal with that and take the initiative to fix it um whereas when they're in their stall and they're calm a lot of people's witnessed calm behaviors and horses that are stalled all the time are actually depressive behaviors um not not indicative of enjoyment of being stalled. So anyways, this study says free-ranging horses spend up to 16 hours a day foraging, which generally happens with a slow and steady walk. Um, So 16 hours a day. So we're comparing free-ranging horses who spend up to 16 hours a day foraging and eating to horses that on average, I would say the vast majority of horses are spending at least 16 hours a day stalled. So that's quite a difference um, in how we adapt their natural behavioral and physiological needs um and horses also spend their entire lives in 
Horses also spend their entire life with a herd in a constant social hierarchy. So putting them alone in stalls limits their natural behavior to a very great extent, especially exercise and social behavior. Um, Stalling is very common for competition horses, it says. Free exercise on pasture or dry lots can improve the degree of animal welfare in the system, but allowing it is not taken for granted by many horse keepers. Particularly, competition horses can be worth a lot of money. Therefore, the most frequent reason for not allowing exercise is the risk of injury. Some riders also fear that free exercise may decrease performance in sport. That's literally the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard, but whatever. That's what the study says. Nevertheless, preventing horses' natural requirement for exercise will likely pose a stressful situation for them. So anyways, that's kind of the write-up for what they said what they needed. In this study, they tested, like, a control group with horses stalled and then with, like, allowing them free exercise to see how it affects their behavior. The horses used were German warm-blood horses. Um, They were dressage and show-jumping horses, and they competed in these disciplines at pre-novice to advanced. Um, Anyways... Behavior in the stable, so they looked at their behavior in the stable to see what they were like, and they kept recordings and used that for part of their study, and then they also registered behavior during training so that they could use that as comparison's sake for when they're actually allowed out. Um, So anyways, I'm going to get to the data collection. Um, Anyways... For the, they they observed the behaviors and groups them into five categories from stall behavior and then frequency of like locomotion within the stalls and then they're gonna compare it to locomotion outside in this study. Um, so anyways, I am just going to go to the results page and read it. So the total duration of observed behaviors of horses in the stalls showed that they spent most of their time standing alert, standing occupied, or dozing. Um. These behaviors were presented were performed 66 to 71% of the observation period and similar results have also been shown in other studies. The time the absolute spent time lying down was 2.1 to 2.5 hours and it matches the findings of other studies as well. So they found that horses that are able to move and turn out tend to have less injuries due to actually being able to have their joint fluid kept lubricated and moving around instead of pooling in the extremities. That was from a different study. They also found that young horses kept on pasture acclimate easier to training and the use of equipment than horses housed in stables. Um, They traced this back to the fact that horses on pasture train their ability to adapt to new situations better than horses in a low stimulus environment like a stable. The housed horses in this investigation also showed more activities such as jumping and bucking. These behavioral patterns are called contumacy contumacy in the present study, which was predicted by Hogan et al. It's another study um, as a result of unspent energy because of stabling. So basically, they're talking about like the period at which like when you let a stalled horse out into a larger space where they can move they usually are more explosive and energetic than horses who have frequent access to turnout because they are making up for unspent energy it's kind of a similar idea to the zoomies in dogs i forgot what the scientific name for that is one of my friends told me and it's funny um but where they're trying to use up energy that for whatever reason they haven't been able to expel at another point um 
Anyways, so they found that lack of free exercise has a rather negative effect on training with this in mind because horses that are turned out with others were easier to train and acclimated to training easier. So ironically, like, not only is the soundness not a concern in a lot of these stalling studies, but it also means that you get a more trainable horse when you actually meet their species-specific needs, which honestly should be obvious, but even with all these studies that we have on it, people are still willing to deny this until they're blue in the face so that they can continue stalling their horses and justifying it. Anyways, um, so, so anyways, the conclusion of this particular study was that allowing horses free exercise affects their behavior in the stable and during training and also their degree of stress. The prevention of free exercise resulted in less lying and more occupation, which they meant standing around, which is interpreted as being decreased demand for rest and balancing as a lack of occupation on pasture. Um, Housing horses in single stalls restricts natural behavior to a great extent. The present study demonstrates that management practices affect horses' behavior and degree of stress during the entire day. Stress is supposed to be minimized to improve animal welfare in a housing system. Allowing free exercise and social interactions are invaluable tools to achieve this aim in horses and thus should be facilitated by every horse keeper. What a shocker. Oh my god, who would have saw that coming? Another study that I'm using for my research paper is conflict behavior in show jumping horses. For those of you who don't know what conflict behavior is, it's just like stuff like head shaking, tail ringing, and so like behaviors that conflict with what the rider is generally asking the horse to do. And it shows the horse is having conflicting emotions, usually as a result of stress. Um, So anyways, the particular study found that Horses who exhibited conflict behaviors showed increased salivary cortisol levels after competition. Um, This is in agreement with previous studies. Duration of low head and neck carriage during the riding test, durations of arousal behaviors when transiently deprived from food, frequency of head weaving and mouth conflict behaviors and forceful head bending training, frequency of conflict behaviors in complicated dressage movements, trailer loading time and horses resistant to load were observed to change significantly in these challenging situations. Similarly, the increase of cortisol in response to low head and neck training and transportation and competition was reported, which this has been found in a lot of things. And by like low head and neck training, a lot of the studies done on like hyperflexion and roll curve found that horses who are behind the vertical are significantly higher in stress levels than horses that are being ridden on or ahead of the vertical. Also, like, letting them have a more dynamic frame so that you're letting them kind of go, like, long and low and having them higher up and changing what you're doing. Horses that don't have to stay in the same static position for the entire ride also typically had less stress behaviors. Um, The study confirmed that horses competing in more difficult rounds tend to display conflict behaviors more frequently. This might reflect greater psychological effort in these jumpers. Conflict behaviors such as head shaking, pulling the reins, tail swishing, refusals, bucking, and bolting mainly derive from psychological frustration or pain, which may be provoked by the use of certain training methods or inappropriate cueing by horse rider. Sorry, I can't talk. Or training errors such as over-hasty implementation of the horse for competitions when it is not prepared for this. 
They have shown that the long intervals between successive starts when the horse had to wait for the final round related to greater frequency of conflict behaviors. This may be explained by the deviation from daily routine. The competition situation differs from regular training at home where the horse usually finishes its work within a predictive time and no further effort is demanded. During observed competitions, the horses have to be ready to go in the second round, in most cases still being saddled. Thus, the added effect of unpredictability of human demands may be stressful in itself. Moreover, as reported by Furo et al., being saddled is normally experienced by working horses, which in certain cases may not always be a positive experience. So that kind of is in line with, like, horses who exhibit, like, bad behaviors when you're saddling them, like biting, kicking, pinning their ears, generally have a negative association with a saddle for some reason, may it be pain or stress in predicting what they're about to do. Um, so anyways... They found that conflict behaviors aren't at all uncommon in show jumpers, which we all know because you've seen what a lot of show jumpers ride their horses in and the horses kind of have to fight and have a few conflict behaviors to escape the pain of a lot of the bidding setups. Um, Anyways, in another study, the difference in cortisol concentration between less and more successful horses was about 200%. Oh my god. Um, and then in other studies, they found that that difference was like 160%. So it's pretty substantial because the horses with higher levels of stress, like to the point where they're 200% higher, would have lower performance. So basically what they've concluded with these types of studies is that too much stress causes lowered performance. Um, so... Which honestly isn't all that surprising because once stress hits a certain threshold, the horses aren't very trainable and they aren't generally thinking a lot about trying to like develop their behaviors and pay attention. Another study studied horses with tight nosebands and their stress levels and they found that like stuff like salivary cortisol level, heart rate, and eye temperature peaked when the nosebend was at its tightest, also suggesting a physiological stress response. The scale of the increase in eye temperature is reported here reported here is consistent with events such as jugular catheterization of dairy cows, which is a pretty stressful event, so that's pretty sad that like tight nosebands can have that much of an effect. Um anyways, uh so they found that tightened nosebands result in pretty significant stress responses from the horses and that having like the two finger rule is important for welfare. Um, and that nosebands exert more pressure than what people may think when they are over-tightened. Um, yeah, so all of the treat, like, basically they did them all tight enough so the horse couldn't yawn, and yawn is also, like, a stress-relieving mechanism. Um, and, like, when the parasympathetic nervous system is kind of dealing with a come down from stress. So anyways, um, and like a transition in, in threshold, like stress threshold and arousal level. So when they're going from a high level of arousal to a low level of arousal and arousal in like a scientific sense describes like excitatory, excite, excite, excitable behavior, um, as well as stressful behavior, fear, anxiety, and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah. So the general consensus in basically all of the studies that I have read thus far is that stress in competition horses is way more common than what most people would predict and that a lot of them are experiencing very high levels of stress that is in accordance with stuff like noseband tightness, the types of bit that they the bits that they use, the types of gadgets that are put on them and what they're being asked to do. 
So with this in mind, like, it's pretty clear that if, like, this many studies are producing the same result, that, like, something needs to change because horses shouldn't be having a super high threshold of stress every time we do something with them. Um, And we, like, we know that, like, like, even the people who use really harsh gadgets, deep down, they have to know that your horse isn't going to be comfortable when you're choosing a piece of equipment specifically for its harshness to try to achieve a certain response a little quicker than what you could get with something that's less harsh. Um, that's the entire intention behind using most training gadgets and when people choose to bit up. Like, it's entirely related to trying to produce a certain result faster, whether it's at the detriment of the horse or not. So I think basically what people need to start doing is admitting, like, whether or not certain equipment is comfortable. Like, I'm going to straight up say it with my chest that no horse is going to enjoy being ridden in a twisted wire snaffle, but especially not a twisted wire bit attached to any sort of leverage or gag bit or curb or anything. Like, they're not going to like that. They're not going to enjoy it. Um, So, like, it's pretty sad that we still try to use gadgets that essentially are focused on getting the horse to submit to the pressure faster or getting them to be, like, within a certain frame faster. And all of these things kind of negate the physical ability of the horse like you can't like even if you ride in draw reins for example if the horse hasn't developed the muscles to appropriately care carry itself you're putting draw reins on to force a position for an extended period of time that they're probably not fit enough to hold it's not going to be comfortable they're not going to like it and they have found stress results in relation to gadgets that kind of force the horse within a static position that they can't escape from um because it takes away a lot of their autonomy and also probably forces discomfort because it would essentially be the same thing as if like a personal trainer took you as a person and started making you do stretches that you are not fit for and like when you couldn't do them said okay like I don't care I'm just gonna push down and like make you do the splits even though you can't um it would hurt (laughs) so um basically I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's literally no reason for competitions to have to not have rules that set parameters around like what level of like harsh bit is allowed or like what gadgets should be allowed in the ring there's no reason why all disciplines shouldn't have that and I think that people are going to have to start to come to terms with the fact that there's a lot of equipment on the market right now that is just simply unfair to the horse and we can't really deny it there's a lot of stuff that is just designed to fast track the results for the rider to the detriment of the horse and people need to start acknowledging that and stop being defensive when these gadgets are criticized because at the end of the day anything your horse needs in terms of gadgets or bidding up is a result of the training whether you have been the one putting the training on them or someone else if a horse is heavy in the bridle to the point where you need a bigger bit to control them it's a result of the training and that's on whoever is doing the work with regards to training. Like a strong horse doesn't come out of the womb as a strong horse. And a lot of the horses who learn how to pull and require harsh bits are doing it because of a higher stress level. And then you put something on them that incites pain if they apply too much pressure or if the rider applies too much pressure themselves, whether the horse is responding or not, and increases discomfort, which certainly is not likely to lower stress. Um, So, like, I think people need to be more aware, first of all, like, how the equipment they're using works and how horses 
who have been tested in these studies react to it. Because um, in a lot of studies that have, are done on equipment, they've showcased higher levels of stress in horses that have tight nosebands, flashes, harsher bits, gadgets designed to hold their head down and make them feel confined, stuff like that. Like the results are replicated time and time again in studies. And yet still we don't see a change in requirements for to benefit equine welfare in competition and like I love competing I like horse shows I think there's a lot of great people that go to them and there's a lot of really great riders that have great horsemanship but right now like as it stands especially with stuff like um like especially with show jumping and stuff where there's not bit regulations to the extent of like dressage and other stuff you're kind of like letting the horses down because not everyone is going to be able to police themselves and know when to stop using X bit or X piece of equipment. And they might need competition to kind of force them to do that. Um, and also just a general like increase in people's understanding of equine welfare and like what is fair to put on their horse would help. But I think competitions should start advocating for equine welfare and like accurately reading equine behavior and kind of factoring in stress levels to how they judge competition and like with show jumping especially since this is my discipline of choice I find it just disgusting like when you go and you're watching like the pinnacle of the sport you're watching the grand prix riders the best of the sport competing all together like at Thunderbird and stuff there are way too many upper level riders that have like ridiculous setups on their horses that there's no way the horse can be comfortable in them and like yes the horses do their jobs but a lot of the behaviors that we take as enjoyment from the horse like rushing fences and like the rider having to pull back on them because they're trying to take off they're usually doing that out of stress it's not because they're like excited about going to the jump especially when they know damn well that if they do it they're going to be running into like a brick wall of bit if they do so so it's like a stress behavior it's like it's trying to escape and when horses start running at fences like that a lot of people handle it by bidding up instead of trying to make the horse approach more relaxed and kind of put the jumps down and focus on that and it can be time consuming especially for horses who rush really badly and I think that this is the main pull for people to use a bit instead that allows them to to do that um but yeah, like there needs to be a limit to to what we accept. Yeah, I think honestly, like for and for most sports in general, like the regulatory boards have to set their rules in line with like what like to detract people who are going to take stupid, lazy shortcuts to the detriment of their horse. And like the rules need to keep those people in mind because... If you start to, like, set rules in accordance with equine welfare and to discourage practices that are inherently unfair to the horse, it'll start to require a higher degree of horsemanship. And frankly, it's quite sad at this point that we're watching people at the top of the sport doing terrible things to their horses, like having their mouths bleed several times over during competition, using, like, tons and tons of gadgets and bits to control them. And they're out there winning and getting applauded for doing this while their horse is suffering because of it. And then the people who are taking their time, who might not have as much money to go out and show or who don't necessarily have a horse who compete at the sa- compete at the same level, but can still go out to shows, they get really underappreciated 
in comparison. Like, there's a lot of really phenomenal riders at the lower levels that have horses that go around super correctly and relaxed and in very little equipment that aren't really getting enough attention. And then we have these riders that a lot of people idolize who have constantly stressed horses. And they get applauded several times over for it when they've taken a shortcut. And like, honestly, especially at the top levels of the sport, money is like a huge detractor for a lot of people. So like, I'm not saying this to like, take away from anyone who has gotten to that level. But there's a lot of people who probably have the talent to be there, but they don't have the money to be there. And they don't have the money to supply them with horses of the caliber that can go there. Or they have to train their own horses, and they might not get there as fast. Or they simply, yeah, if they can't pay the entry fees, they're not going to be there, whether they can be there or not. So, like, competition isn't accessible enough for people to make the claim, like, oh, like, if you could do it, you would be there already. Like, clearly what this person is doing works, and that's why you're not there. No, there's a lot of things that make it so that people can't access upper levels of competition. And we also don't, we don't try to consider equine welfare when we are competing, and, like, the judges and stuff certainly aren't right now, so (sighs) it's just one of those things where, like, a lot of the people who deserve to get the credit for competing at those levels aren't getting to be there, and then the ones who are getting the credit don't necessarily deserve it, and there are some upper-level riders who I really respect and that I think do good by their horses and are setting a great example for, like, the younger generation, but those riders are fewer in population than the ones who are kind of rushing and kind of just doing what they need to do to produce results and it's pretty sad because like at the end of the day like we we all like I said at the beginning of this podcast we all will claim that we're in the sport because we love the horses until we're blue in the face but then when there's discussion about changing things to benefit the horses or stuff that criticizes certain ways of doing things people balk at it and they don't want to deal with it and if you're really in it for the horse, like, you should be willing to consider that, like, now that we know more and we've studied them more, that there's certain things that we should be changing because there's a lot of stuff that we've done for many years and before we had an excuse because we didn't know that it wasn't okay, but now that we have the information to kind of show us that there's a better way of doing things or even if we haven't found the better way yet that things need to change, there's not really an excuse to continue having our heads in the sand ignoring it. And a lot of the stuff applies to me too because there's definitely things that I could have done to make competition less stressful for all of my horses and it's stuff that I have to take into account now and change um but with that said like I I definitely think that the amount of criticism people at the lower levels get for like minor mistakes like catching their horse in the mouth over a jump or like something like that or like having like eck not be perfect having like like sloppy a, a lower leg that isn't really strong or something they get completely crucified meanwhile like a lot of the people at the top of the sport who are hurting their horses mouths more but they might not be catching them in the mouth but they're using something that's inherently more harmful to their mouth than the lower level rider who caught their horse in the mouth they don't meet the same level of criticism and if anything like the people who are setting the example at the top level of the sport should be getting criticized the most and being like being expected to set the best example for everybody and 
our sport is like so skewed because we're so hard on like people who are just trying their best and just go to shows for fun and like aren't claiming that they know everything and are just learning like those people make get made to feel like they can't share their progress online because they're so frequently met with backlash and then if you even dare like breathe a word about an upper level rider potentially doing something bad with the exception of Marilyn Little maybe because so many people dislike her now that you're less likely to get slammed but a lot of other riders if you try to criticize anything they do you get destroyed and people will like even go as far as like pulling up photos of like the person who made the criticism and making fun of how they ride and it's just like I've seen that happen before. It's just, like, so ridiculous because we're holding, like, young riders and, like, people who are amateurs just out there to join the, enjoy the sport, not there to make money. We're holding them to a higher degree of accountability than we hold, like, the people at the top of the sport who should know better and should know how to treat their horses and do things, but they don't. Um, so I guess, like, what I'm saying is that, like, there's a lot that needs to change in terms of, like, what we view as acceptable for horses, and it's not going to be perfect, and, like, this is, again, I'm not saying these things to, like, guilt trip people who have stressed horses at shows because shit happens, and I mean, like, hell, you guys have seen Milo, how he can be at shows, and it's only been, like, this past year where he's actually started to get more relaxed at shows, and it's taken a while, and I probably could have avoided a lot of the stress behaviors that he has by taking it slower and getting him used to ground pulls more before jumping him and not kind of doing it as fast because like I took I've taken it slower than most people would from what I have witnessed but it wasn't always slow enough for him at his rate um and it definitely increased stress so now I'm I have to fight against behaviors that I created and try to remodel those behaviors which is always harder than just doing it properly from the first place um so like I said, this isn't to shame someone for having a stressed horse because you can deal with horses in stressful circumstances kindly and ethically and like with their well-being in mind and you can make a show experience more pleasant for a horse even if they're stressed without getting mad at them. But if you have a highly stressed horse and you're putting like a band-aid over it by like throwing on a bigger bit or putting spurs on using a whip and kind of laying into them if they stop and stuff, then that's where I have a problem. And they're not really discouraged from it. Like, I've read some of the rules in, like, the FEI, USEF, Equine Canada, and I'm <coughs> sorry about that, um, and, like, some of the rules that they have, like, are great. Like, FEI discourages hyperflexion and says in their rules that, like, horses behind the vertical are supposed to get marked down, but then in studies on the young horse classes, they found that the young horses were getting marked higher for being behind the vertical, which is ironic. Because then the judges that are judging FEI shows aren't following the protocol outlined in the rules. And this isn't the only example of that happening. It happens in a lot of rule books where they start to sway away from, like, the outlined rules within the book and, like, what how the class is supposed to be marked. And it... It's frustrating because nothing really gets done about it. And then, yeah, like, criticizing these types of things is very hard to do because people are so protective of the upper-level riders and they're so quick to degrade and condescend you if you're not one of them. But also, like, it's kind of like a... all. It's like a 
club at that level like they even the people who know that other riders are doing shady shit kind of don't want to say anything they don't want to get involved because they don't want to rock the boat so we can't rely on people at that level to be the ones pushing for change because even ones who know things are wrong are probably too scared to rock the boat like quite literally the only upper level rider that i know that has been actively like addressing the welfare stuff and the lack of accessibility is carl cook and i don't think there's very many other upper level riders that are actually doing this and dedicating a lot of time to it occasionally you'll see them like join in to like like a anti-racism panel for example tiffany foster did that but also tiffany foster liked a comment where someone said i'm not black enough to be talking about racist issues because i'm white passing and i'm half black um she liked that comment and then went and did an anti-racism panel and then it just comes across to me at least as fraudulent so i think that to some extent, a lot of upper-level riders will pick and choose when they speak out on things, and they'll do it to virtue signal and kind of get good traction for themselves and, like, applause for themselves without fully dedicating themselves to the actual problem and caring about it as much as they probably should. Um, and, like... But the majority of them honestly just don't say anything. So, like, leaving it to them to address these issues, like, they're never going to change then because everyone's too scared to start advocating for it. And, like, if you did, you'd probably get slammed by everyone else who would get negatively impacted by certain changes to the rules. Um, And so they kind of need the little guys to start demanding things. And, again, like, part of demanding things is also setting an example. Like... I think that more riders should be less quick to bit up to fix things and start to try to think about how they can develop their exercises and their training to fix certain undesirable behaviors instead of just slapping a band-aid over it and using a bit that is more aversive to the horse so that they work to avoid it more and are thereby easier to control. But you've not actually fixed the problem that you started with. You just put a piece of equipment that makes it way more painful or harder to engage in said problem. So I think it's up to more riders to kind of set the example of riding in softer bits and discouraging certain types of bits and equipment and kind of really putting it out there that like certain things just shouldn't be accepted just because it's like what we've always known. Um, And then that way, like that, along with pushing for better, stricter rules to protect the horses, then we might actually see some change because like this is a huge problem that extends far outside the competition world, like even within like general like regular keeping of horses i personally see no reason why it should be legal anywhere with the exception of like stall rest or certain health issues for horses to be stalled 24 7 i do not think that should be legal it is unethical and it should not exist but there's very few welfare laws protecting all animals but also horses suffer as a result of the shitty welfare regulations more than i would say dogs or cats do because For dogs and cats, there's a lot more you can do to kind of fight for their welfare. Like, if I were to report someone for stalling a horse 24-7 for its entire life, nothing would come out of it because they wouldn't view it as unethical, despite the fact that, like, in study, it has been found to be unethical time and time again. And, like, it's one thing to do the best of what you can with what you currently have options with your horse, but far too many people are in denial about the fact that stuff like stalling or severe bits is unfair to the horse and they don't want to admit to it and if you're not willing to admit or or acknowledge something and start to think like I should do my best to enrich this situation the best I can 
then you're not going to be changing anything if you don't have that attitude. So, like, compared to someone who might live in an area where they only really have access to stalls, them being aware that it's not great that their horse spends most of the time in the stall and doing as much as they can to make up for that means that their horse is going to be inherently happier and have better welfare than a horse with an owner who doesn't make that connection and doesn't think it's a problem and doesn't think it needs to get addressed in any way. So, this is just to say, like, like, I'm not trying to guilt trip people for using anything or, like, handling horses in a certain way. I'm just saying, like, findings and just the common sense of using certain pieces of equipment, how it is perceived by the horse. Because what works for us doesn't always come across well to the horse. And that's that's a fact. And honestly, like, as a horse trainer, it's kind of, it's kind of a weird moral dilemma for me in a lot of situations, especially being in the racing world and the show world, along with, like, studying actual equine science. It can be hard to kind of find a happy medium. And, like, it's never a situation, or most cases not a situation, where I'm in complete agreement with basically anyone and their practices. But, like, you can start to appreciate people who are doing the best with the equipment that they use and the situations that they give their horse. So like people who make an effort to make sure their horse has an in and out paddock, even if it's not a large turnout, the quality of life and the welfare is way higher for horses who have an in and out. Even people building new barns and making sure that they have bars between the stalls instead of solid walls benefits the welfare, happier horses. People who might be riding in a harsh bit currently, but are actively working on bidding down so that they're not reliant on a piece of equipment that is harsh to control the horse easier. Those people are great. They're working on making it better for the horse. And so, like, this isn't to criticize the equipment that you use because also, like, as a trainer, the hard thing is that, like, not all riders have the tools in their box to fix certain problems without using some sort of gadget or something else. But I think that more people need to learn about the negative impacts of gadgets being used too much or used in a certain way or learn about how it can affect the horse and start to try to learn different avenues of doing things. And like I said, like there's different situations where the rider might not be capable of doing like changing a behavior on their own and might need help from something else. And I'm not negating that, but I'm just saying that we need to start being more careful what we condone because there's way too many things coming out on the market and like more and more bits on the market that are just like designed to make the rider's job easier, but the horse's life a whole lot worse. And we haven't been critical enough of them. And in competition, it's more or less encouraged in a lot of disciplines because of what we allow to be ridden in. Like dressage is virtually the only one that I can think of that actually has regulations in place that basically make it impossible for someone to use like something really gross and harsh. And like double bridles aren't in like they're not like a soft bit. But with that said, like the riders at that level are probably at the point where they can use them more accurately and all of the mouthpieces are going to be smooth. Whereas you have people pairing a big shank with like an aversive, like crappy, like twisted wire mouthpiece and riding around in it with a hard contact and not necessarily the best hands and that flies in the show jumping ring. Or like when I was showing Arabs, like Kimber Wicks and thin twisted wires were all the rage and a thin twisted wire snaffle could look nice from the outside because you would just see the snaffle ring, but it is grotesque if you actually look at what's inside the horse's mouth. And 
there's just not enough of an education for people to even learn that these things are a problem. So they grow up kind of being indoctrinated into believing that all these things are okay and that it doesn't harm the horse and that like their trainer knows all. But I'm telling you right now, like even the people you really care about and respect in the horse world and even your trainer, it doesn't take away from them being a good trainer. But without having an active desire to kind of follow science and learn about what science finds with regards to learning theory and how to best apply things to help horses learn the best without having access to that they're inevitably going to make mistakes and tell people to do things without knowing the repercussions of them or the potential for certain repercussions whether they meet them or not without actively trying to learn and better yourselves as we learn about horses more you're going to make mistakes. I've made mistakes. Every rider will make mistakes. Even as you're actively trying to learn, it's inevitable because we're probably going to find out more and more as years roll on and then we're going to continue to adapt practices as a result. So mistakes are fine. However, I find that in competition and with how we teach riders regularly, we're making the same mistakes again and again. And that's where the problem lies because it's not, it's insanity if you keep repeating the same mistake again and again. And then we look at like how many soundness issues competition horses have, how common it is to see barns full of horses with stall vices, how common it is to see stressed horses at shows. These are all indicators that we could do things better. And this is not to say, like I've said several times now, that any stress behavior is bad or if a horse has an explosion at a show, it's always bad and it's always the rider's fault. But if it's happening happening to the degree it is currently, there definitely is a way we could do it better to result in happier and quieter horses. And there's a lot of riders and trainers who are doing that, but we're not doing it on a large enough scale yet. And we haven't pushed this information to kind of follow suit with how competitions judge horses and how the governing bodies regulate their rules and like how they kind of set general practices um like there's a there's a lot of stuff we could do at shows to better horses lives like heck even like within the stable blocks if we started doing more open air stalls or like having it be a situation where the horses aren't essentially in a jail cell that they cannot see anything out of and cannot see other horses like at shows it's obviously harder to do and it's less of a problem if people are showing infrequently but if you're showing all the time every single weekend or for weeks on end and the horse is just having to be in a stall all the time then that's where it kind of starts to be a problem there's ways that showgrounds could probably make stalling practices more ethical and give people at the shows more options to kind of enrich their horses lives more and make it less stressful for them to be there and they could set regulations to kind of help this happen and to kind of hold people accountable if they're not willing to change to follow it um so there's a lot that we can do to better the situation in the horse world and it's honestly not gonna be that hard because it's not even that you have to do everything all at once you can start taking baby steps and just being more mindful of what you're doing like before you decide to change your horse's equipment, start to think about, like, is this behavior because they're in pain? Is it because they're stressed? Is it because they're not understanding what I'm asking them? How can I make this make more sense to them? What is the driving cause behind why this certain behavior is exhibiting? 
and start to kind of think like that more and then you're going to have an easier time solving the behaviors because you'll be addressing the why behind them instead of just trying to stop that specific behavior and it'll make training easier and less stressful because there's less room for mistakes to be made if you're actually understanding the behaviors and working to get to the bottom of them to address them and to try to fix them the best way for your horse. So it's a long road for like a complete change to get to the point where we're actually seeing like ethical riding as like the example for everyone within the circuit. But like there's a lot of stuff that we can do to start trying to push it that way. And it all starts with like people just being more mindful of horses and trying to like learn about specific behaviors more instead of just believing at face value what someone tells you because I've seen so many people write off stress behaviors as just being like a horse's quirk or something that they do with their personality and not properly addressing them and like if they had then they'd realize hey like I could probably make this behavior occur less if I just turn my horse out and do this or that and it's like it's a learning process and it sucks because once you've already made the mistakes it's a lot harder to fix but it's always possible to adapt to the behavior like I said like I'm I'm trying to fix a lot of mistakes that I've made in the past and then also like mistakes that like people have made on horses that I get in for training and realistically like all I can do is like the best that I can within a certain situation and unfortunately like when you're training lots of different horses you're doing stuff within the confines of like a certain discipline or within like a certain time frame and stuff and you're limited in what you can do because the horse doesn't belong to you so like the way I might do things for my personal horses might differ from what I do with horses in training but at the end of the day I'm doing the best that I can to set an example for that specific industry or discipline like for racing I'm trying to show people that this is the way I do things I use treats during training and it works and these are how your horses are going now and while I might not agree with everything that goes on with like racing or specific courses like I'm doing my best to try to start to incite change within that industry because here's the thing Change, if you come in really, really drastic and dramatic, isn't going to happen because you put people off. And honestly, this is what put me off from actually, like, understanding behavioral science to the point that I do now because there is so many hardcore people on Instagram or Facebook that would take something that is a decent point, but they would take it to such an extreme that it was just off-putting. Like, for example, people who train with positive reinforcement saying that any form of pressure and release is bad, which is not true because you can cause a positive association with pressure and release by rewarding that cue when you're teaching it. And this is how I was actually breaking horses for several years now, was by teaching them the cues on the ground and giving them rewards for the correct behavior, rather than just increasing the pressure when they didn't give me what I wanted. I've been doing that for years. So inadvertently, I was already linking things using positive reinforcement for under saddle stuff without even being aware of it. But people who were kind of pushing for that change and for more use of positive reinforcement ended up putting kind of a bad taste in my mouth because they said that any form of pressure and release was unfair to the horse. And I thought that was kind of silly because even for like leading them, most of what we use is pressure and release unless your horse can anticipate exactly what you're going to do when you do it. and just follow suit which honestly for most people's cases it's not very realistic in like a practical setting of training horses or working at boarding barns and stuff there's a certain level of like training and like type of training that you should accept that practically is too hard to apply right now 
and maybe one day it'll get to the point where we don't need to use any pressure and release with horses, but pressure and release is not inherently aversive depending on how you teach it. And like just working on not causing a painful or fearful response and like having horses be as relaxed as possible in training is like what everyone should do. Like that that's kind of the goal for everyone just being conscious of like why your horse exhibits certain behaviors and doing the best you can within a certain situation to change them and then also when you do make mistakes or if you do something by accident or if you catch your horse in the mouth or if you get frustrated and out of habit you crop your horse when they stop or something like addressing the behavior right there and being like that was wrong I need to really work on whatever inside me caused me to make that decision and reaction and it's all about like developing ourselves and kind of undoing bad training we were initially taught and also undoing our preconceived notions about equine behavior that aren't true and it's a process and that's okay like I think that it get it gets hard when people take a very extreme stance because it makes people get go on the defense and I know that even like from what I've said I've put people on the defense because I can be pretty blunt sometimes um and that's not my intention because it is a process like if I can even change one person who has their horse stalled all the time to start to consider even just taking it for walks or hand grazing it every day and just adding something to change up the monotonous schedule of being stalled that's a win in my book because you're bettering the horse's situation Like, that's the thing. Most cases, like, even within human-to-human relationships, most cases are not going to be perfect. All we can do is try to start to better the situation and take steps towards the end goal of, like, the best situation. So change doesn't have to be instantaneous, but I do think that it's been far too slow to happen in the competition world with regards to regulations and whatnot. And I also think the competition world is really behind in terms of like developing more accessibility for like disabled riders or riders of lower financial brackets and so on and so forth. So there is a lot of change that has been a long time coming that just hasn't happened yet. And I think people kind of need to start demanding for that to happen. Um, So yeah, that's kind of my my take on this whole thing and as I continue to write my research paper and go through these studies I'm sure I will have more thoughts and maybe I'll even change some of my opinions here um but we'll see like that's the thing like learning and education is a process so like it's never a loss to change and say like I was wrong before and this is what I do now like when people try to be like oh but you Shelby you did this before as like a gotcha when I'm like pushing certain ideas it's not the gotcha they think it is because normal people should be learning and developing and advancing with time and that's nothing to be ashamed of if you stick to the same ideas you've had for years without ever questioning them that's honestly what we should all be embarrassed of you should always kind of be looking into other things and trying to look at credible information even if it challenges what you're comfortable with because you don't learn anything within your comfort zone and if you just push away anything that makes you uncomfortable it's never gonna end well so that's kind of my my thoughts on competition and like what I need I think needs to be changed and I hope people enjoyed that rambling mess of like me trying to read studies at the fly on the fly I mean and I'm losing my voice again now that I've been talking for so long so this is a podcast coming to a close once again um as I said at the beginning I would love for it if you would check out my other 
channels like my YouTube channel, which is my just my name, Shelby Dennis, or Instagram and Twitter, which is S-D-E-Q-U-U-S, or my Patreon, which helps support this podcast, and you can subscribe for as little as $3 per month, and it's great. Um, so that's really fun and stuff. Um, and I appreciate all your support, and also I have Christmas sweaters out now on my merch store. They're horse-related, and they're really cute, and there's some funny ones, and I really like them. So if you want a fun Christmas sweater in time for Christmas, I would recommend ordering them soon if you don't want to pay for rush shipping if you wait too long. Um, they're pretty cool. You can find that on my store on Teespring. It's called Milestone Equestrian, um, and the links are also on my Instagram and YouTube channels if you look in the descriptions of things. So you can check that out there. I appreciate everyone listening. I hope this was interesting and I love your support and I hope that I can help start to make a difference in the horse world just by even getting people to kind of consider and think further into things than they might be taught because at the end of the day a lot of what we're taught especially once we're just learning about horses is very watered down and it's kind of just skimming the the horse's level of perception to the bare bones basics and not properly addressing all of their behaviors and why they exist. So I highly recommend like looking into behavioral science on horses. It'll definitely help your training. Um, whether you want to use negative reinforcement or positive or a combined reinforcement, it'll help you because it'll help you understand how to time things better and how to kind of mark behaviors and gradually shape certain behaviors. It will help you, I promise. So I highly recommend that. Like I said, I share a lot of relevant studies and stuff on my Patreon and we discuss them. So that's a good place to go if you want to read some studies and um, my opinions on them and like how I'm using them in school and stuff. So anyways, thank you for listening and I hope you all have a lovely day.